plus minus. Tim Kawakami deserves all the credit. Plus minus. That is a word right there. What'd you say? Plus minus. Marcus Thompson. Marcus always telling the truth. Plus minus. The only thing that I would say to Ethan Strauss is that he's a pretty damn good reporter. Um, he's well respected. I think he got the highest plus minus in the season in NBA history. This is Warriors plus minus. We are back, or maybe I should say I am back. I am feeling uh, abandoned. I am feeling unloved. I am feeling alone and hurt. I'm a little hurt. I learned last night that Tim Kawakami would not do the show. And then this morning I learned... Ethan Strauss is going the Steph Curry route and blaming his son. So I'm on BART and I'm on my way to San Francisco to record the pod and I find out that, yo, I'm flying solo. And you know what that tells me? It's okay. It's fine. I understand. Like, that's the game. But it just tells me how they really feel, right? And that's the hard part. It's not doing the show by myself. It's thinking you had a certain relationship with people and then they leave you hanging, right? That's the part. That's the part that hurts you deep. You feel me? So, uh, yeah. You know, I'm not gonna tell them this. I'm just gonna eat this, right? I'm not gonna bring it up to them. I'm not gonna rub it in their face. I'm just going to let it be. But you know that now I know. I know who I'm dealing with now. I know without a doubt what I'm working with. So, with that said, it's just me and you today on this Warriors Plus Minus. Fortunately, we have, you know, quite a bit to talk about because coronavirus, I'm sorry, COVID-19, I've learned through reading that there's multiple coronaviruses, but the one we're dealing with, the one that has taken over our lives, COVID-19, has now impacted me. COVID-19 has showed up on my doorstep knocked on my door, and it's all in my refrigerator. You know, writing its name on the orange juice. No, I don't have coronavirus, I don't think. Uh, my wife doesn't have coronavirus, but she's a preschool teacher, so it's probably only a matter of time. And my daughter seems fine, but, you know, who knows? Their schools are full of germs. But because of COVID-19, the NBA along with the NHL and MLS and what was the other other league? Major League Baseball have decided to kick the media out of the clubhouse and locker room and dressing room. Clubhouse for baseball, dressing room for NHL, locker room for NBA. What do they call it in soccer? Was it the locker room? All right. Come on, soccer. Step your game up. Get a unique name for y'all spot. You know what I'm saying? Like, step it up. So we are now not allowed into the locker room. And I feel personally attacked by COVID-19 because the locker room is not just Draymond Green sanctuary. It's not Stephen Curry sanctuary. It is also my sanctuary. This is what I do. You feel me? And they are denying me that. I'm not a press conference guy. I'm not a podium guy. 
I use the podium to promote books. That's about it. That's about the only reason, the only value for podiums and press conferences is if I got a book to promote. Otherwise, I don't like group answers. I don't like the outcomes from questions where everybody can hear the answer. I have made my craft centered on getting different answers, being able to ask questions that aren't asked at the podium being able to ask questions that others are afraid to ask and also getting answers that people just don't trust to the masses. So COVID-19 is warring with my life. COVID-19 is like, look, dude, I know you have been doing this for 20 years and this is how you became you, but we about to switch that up now. Now you about to get your mix zone on. I feel a little attacked. First, COVID-19 is trying to trying to get me fired, you know what I'm saying? Trying to ruin my re-up. And then Kawakami and Ethan bail on me. What's next? What's next? You feel me? So I look and look, there are a lot of media who've been out there talking about how we don't need locker room access. Locker room access is uh unnecessary. And I get it in other sports. It happens, right? In other sports, they don't go in a locker room. Like, you know, soccer, they go in a locker room. I remember, speaking of which, I remember I first covered a WNBA game, and I'm just going to be honest. I'm not going to front. I was like, oh, so what's about to happen? Are we about to go in a locker room? Are they going to be naked? Like, I'm, I, I kind of wanted to see what was going to happen, how this was going to work. I, I just didn't know, you know? I didn't know. at that. By that point, I had seen, like, Sammy Sosa naked. So I was like... So do we just go in and Cheryl Swoops just won't be dressed? Like, how is this going to work? And to my surprise, they brought all the players out. <laughs> I mean, look, I was a young reporter. I didn't know. Was there part of me who was kind of hoping? No, of course not. Of course I was a professional, you know? I'm not going to assume that a woman wants to see the guys naked in the men's locker room. So don't be assuming that I wanted to see Cheryl Swoops. You know, I did not. I thought that would be uncomfortable. But I was curious how it would be handled. So, but, you know, they brought the players out. This was during the Houston Comets days. They brought the players out and, you know, it was fine. We did the interviews. Or, actually, I, I changed that. No, I, I ch correction. Now that I'm thinking about it, because I remember talking to Tina Thompson and another player, we did get to go in the locker room, but there was a period in the locker room where they weren't changing. It was like, okay, you have this amount of time to come in and do interviews, and then when that time is over, they would all change. So essentially the locker room became like a mix zone. So that's how they handled it. I just remember wondering, yo, how is this going to work? Because since I've been an intern – you know, you go in locker rooms, and that's how it was. So it was like, all right, well, how is this about to go down, you know? So I agree that it's not always necessary, and I'm not angry at the other media members who are like, you got, we don't need to be in the locker room anyway. I will say this, though. Number one, it's one of the things that makes NFL and NBA coverage unique. So... If you're wondering why 
NBA stories get more traction and popularity than soccer stories, you could probably point to the fact that the locker room was open, <laughs> right? If you're wondering why, during the off season, there are always stories in the NBA. It has something to do with the locker room being open to media. So I get it. Like, yeah, you don't have to have it. College, you don't get it. College, they bring out players – you know, at their choosing often, but it impacts the coverage. It definitely impacts the coverage. I'll give you a great example. I was at Stanford for Sabrina Yanescu's record-setting game when she played at Stanford, and she flew from L.A. that day because she went to Kobe's memorial, flew back, beat Stanford, became the first college basketball player with 2,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, 1,000 assists. And then after the game, the media room was packed. Guess who did not speak? Sabrina Ionescu. She didn't speak. This historic day, this major day, she wasn't available. Now, I understand why she wasn't available. Like, I get it. But you telling me the coverage wouldn't have been better if she's explaining this, if she's allowing the great storytellers who were in that room to get the ingredients they need to tell a great story? You telling me the coverage wouldn't have been better? Of course it would have been better. I had questions. I wanted to know. Like, I get it, though. She's. I'm not saying she should have spoke. They should have done what they, whatever they did. That's fine. But if you want to talk about coverage and the importance of locker rooms, yes. <laughs> there was a perfect example. I was reading all the stories because I wrote about it in Sunday Randomness, and I was looking at the stories, and they were all the same. They were all the same. Nobody had anything unique. They were all the same. And that's not what makes coverage great. Right. So there is a definite difference in coverage. So if these leagues want to continue with uh, trite, monotonous coverage, then they will keep us out of the locker room. I don't think the NBA wants to do that. And that's another point that I think gets missed. Players like us in the locker room. They do. Not all the time. Right. Not all the time. And they don't like everybody. But do you know how many times? In my career, I've been covering the NBA since 2004. I can't even count the number of times I've walked in the locker room and somebody has called me over because they had something to say. <laughs> they wanted me in. We're waiting for me to get to the locker room, <laughs> right? There's something private about a locker room. So I don't know how you could create that elsewhere. If, if there had been players allowed – and I'm not advocating, like, getting in the locker room or whatever, but just say in that situation with Sabrina, players had been allowed in the locker room. She might have had already a special rapport with a player who, even though she was tired and was exhausted and had the flu and didn't want to do it, she might have said, yeah, but I'll talk to that one person because we have this relationship. That's how the game goes. That's how I apply my craft. So, look, here's how I feel. Kick us out of the locker room. I'm still going to do what I do. You know what I'm saying? So whatever. But for all the media that are like, oh, you don't need the locker room. No, we don't need the locker room, but coverage is better because of it. Our stories are better because of it. And the players want it too. They probably would like less time. They would like to have it on their own terms, right? They would like to be like, all right, I got something to say. Let the media in. All right, I don't feel like media kick us out. (laughs) But the institution of how it's set up, they like the closeness of the relationships. They like it. They respect people who do their job well. They have messages they want to get out and and can't always just go to Twitter and say it. There are things they want to say, and 
they got to say it to somebody they feel comfortable with because the rapport has been built. So, yes, there is a factor from locker rooms. Uh, now, can you create that somewhere else? Perhaps. Of course you can. I'm certainly not pining to, to talk to a dude while he's naked. It is like a very unnatural setting, you know, but one of the reasons is <laughs> they kind of want it. They're like, let's do this now so I can get up out of here. Can you imagine no locker rooms with Clay? Can you imagine how mad Clay would be if he had to sit in the mix zone for 30 minutes? <laughs> you can't sneak out when there's no locker room access. <laughs> Everybody's got to come out. See, that's the, like the new rule, right, where it's like, okay, if we ask for a player, that player's got to come out and give us what we need. But if it's a locker room and it's kind of a free-for-all, guys like Clay could just slip out and just be like, man, I'm out, dude. It's all good. But he ain't going to be able to do that. So that's just my take on the locker room closures. I'm going to go into the game so I can see what life is like with Corona. But I do believe that at some point games will be postponed or played without fans. We're just we're just trending that direction. It might be inevitable at this point. I mean, we've seen the city of Santa Clara basically Debo <laughs> the Sharks and <laughs> and the uh, earthquakes. Couldn't Debo Stanford though? Stanford's are like, when we doing what we do, Playboy? Back up. We got our own city. We got our own post office and everything. But but they are like, it's almost inevitable. Not. I don't even know that it's necessary. I think a lot of this is hype and paranoia, but hype and paranoia is real. Like once people get it, you can't act like they aren't paranoid. I was on BART today and normally, you know, you squeezing in on BART, right? Normally it's like that, cause I get on the West Oakland station. So everybody who's coming to San Francisco all throughout the Bay, they've already all got on the train. <laughs> so I'm on the last stop before San Francisco. So it's usually packed. And you're looking for that one crevice to squeeze in. You know what I'm saying? And I, I got my backpack on, so it's like, don't close my backpack in the door. Today, it was chilling. I was standing in the middle of the thing with my legs spread open surfing because I don't want to touch nothing. So I was just like, had the broad stance. So when the train started moving, I could balance because I, was, I wasn't touching nothing. But it was, it was wide open. Breaking news. The Warriors signed Michael Mulder to a multi-year contract. They really like him. I got something coming on him in uh, Sunday randomness. So, But back to Corona. Uh, so I was reading an article, I think it was USA Today, Scott Gottlieb, who was, I think he was like a director of Food and Drug Administration, something like that. But he was saying, basically, this thing is way past containment. We're not containing it. People are going to get it. It's going to spread, right? They can't do the R not. They don't even know what it is. You know, R not is how they determine like how contagious a disease is. So R0 would mean it's going to die out. If it's anything, from what I was reading, if it's anything one or under, the disease will die out Like because this person is not affecting anybody. But if it gets like two and three, so that means every person infected will infect two or three people, now it's going to spread like crazy. So we've gotten past the point, like the r not is probably, it's over two at this point. So people are going to get it. So this guy was saying, look, man, at this point, it's just about doing the smart thing. And one of those things is not <laughs> having NBA games, <laughs> not having congregations of 20,000 people. I mean, I want to not agree with that. 
I want to be like, nah, dude, what are you talking about? But who am I? What do I know? I'm just a dude from East Oakland who feel like none of this stuff ever touched the hood. So I ain't, wor- <laughs> so I ain't worried about it, you know? Like, we already got our own problems. We ain't think about no corona. So, and it's funny because I ain't even in the hood no more technically. Technically, I am, but I'm in the gentrified part, so it's different. But I still feel like I'm in the hood. So, I want to say, nah, man, this ain't real. Y'all just hype. But if... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, at some point they're gonna they're gonna play games in empty arenas or cancel games or at least push the season back. Now I don't even know if that's gonna work. At some point, it's not just about the virus; it's also about managing the fear and the panic, <laughs> like because that that's where we are at this point. I don't know what this is going to do. I don't know what it's going to do. I don't know. It sounds like this is happening anyway. Fortunately, 80% of the people who get it, it'll be mild. Fortunately, it, apparently children are immune to it, right? Children aren't getting sick at all. Usually flu and viruses go after old people and young people. Old people, both because their immune systems are either not developed or compromised, but apparently young people are not getting this. So, you know, that's good. Like, if people are going to get it, it's, it's good for those to be those to be true, right? Most people will not be harmed too badly by it. The fatality rate is pretty low. It's higher than the regular flu, but it's still pretty low comparably. So part of me is like, look, if this thing is going to spread, what are we doing? Why are we stopping stuff then if it's inevitable? <laughs> How about everybody just get it like chicken pox and, <laughs> and then we move on? I remember when I was young, my mother tells me that my cousin, who was the same age, had chicken pox. So she put me in the crib with him so I can get chicken pox, like voluntarily exposing me to stuff. Like part of me thinks like, what are we running from, you know? I mean, but there are some real issues. If too many people get it at, at one time, it's going to overrun the healthcare system. But, of course, that just means the healthcare system needs to overhaul anyway. You know, there are some issues, and there's no point in spreading it too fast. But, I, you know what, I guess I just wish we, I, I guess wish we had more concrete evidence. I guess wish it wasn't the percentages of this that is based on fear and panic was lower. And... Just from what I'm reading, I don't see that. But if you need to take preventative measures, I, I guess the part if you're an NBA team and if you're the American economy, the question is, what's worse? <laughs> Dying from mass hysteria over the economy falling apart because everything shut down <laughs> or dying from a virus, right? It's like you can't win either way. But you start shutting down everything, you start – effectively closing metropolis you know in america like you're asking for other problems it's not like oh okay we're gonna pause this for a month and then get back right to what we were no systems will fall like things will happen uh old people are losing their savings as the stock market crash it rallied a little bit today you know it was positive when i was coming over here but like there are other things to think about and I get it. It just it just feels like uh, 
it feels like too much panic and hysteria driving it. But look, I don't know. I'm just I'm just the sports writer talking. <laughs> I read a few articles and I didn't even stay in the Holiday Inn Express, so I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but if they're saying, "Yo, we probably shouldn't have twenty thousand people gathering in stadiums," you know what? Uh, I'd probably go with it. <laughs> and I think eventually, I think eventually they will. The question I have is, what happens when they do that? How do you get back? Like Santa Clara said, no gatherings of a thousand or more in three weeks. Well, what's supposed to happen in three weeks? <laughs> so in three weeks, they're like, oh, all clear now. We're all, <laughs> it's all good. Like, I mean, if we if they know something that three weeks is it, then yeah, let's pause everything for three weeks. If they know something that says, yeah, if you just hold off for three weeks, it's going to be all good. Oh, absolutely. Let's just push everything three weeks out. And take and if you need to if you need to cut something, cut the baseball season. <laughs> I, I'm I'm all for taking three weeks out of the baseball season, you know, because at some point something's got to take the L. If they know that, then then do that. Otherwise, I just don't know what what's gonna make you say we're back because vaccinations can't even start trials for three months. Like there won't be a cure for this thing probably. I mean, if if there's a cure or an antidote or a vaccination for coronavirus in 2020, that would be good. So we don't know when this, (laughs) like, you're like, yeah, let's stop the games. Okay, when do you restart them? What happens when people stop sneezing? Like, what's the the reasons uh, when you know you got it under control? But I, I just feel like the way this is trending with the numbers, just the sheer numbers, with the public pressure, with other cities like Italy shutting down and some of these uh, major, major sporting events shutting down, eventually the NBA won't just be able to be like, yeah, nah, we're different. (laughs) Eventually it's going to happen. If nothing else, they will play games in an empty arena. I I feel like that's coming. But I've, I've talked to people who are saying, yeah, like we need to be smart, but some of these measures are that are being taken just don't make sense like there's no the rationale behind them isn't based on science like i mean look i'm not i'm a media member so obviously i have some bias but what is keeping us out the locker room gonna do (laughs) like for real so we can't talk to you in a locker room but we can talk to you in an interview room And, and six to eight feet is all it takes so y'all cool with us media people infecting each other and then going out and infecting everybody else, infecting the fans, infecting the staff. But as long as we six to eight feet from the players, we good. Like, what are we talking about here? This doesn't make, <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I get it. You got to protect the players. But so basically you're saying everybody else is cool to infect. Just stay away <laughs> from Kevon Looney, right? <laughs> Man, don't don't man, don't be spitting your droplets on Eric Pascal. Say, keep your eight feet. But man, when you hit them concessions, it's cool. Like, you know what I'm saying? When you go to get your uh your uh your uh lobster roll, like it's okay to to drop a droplet on somebody over there. Like, what are we? What are you talking about? This doesn't make sense as a measure. But you know, it's not about the measure. It's about controlling the panic and the fears and and trying to do something to alleviate. It. Anyway, I've talked enough about Corona and COVID-19. Uh, I'm just I'm just rambling over here. I didn't even get into racism. Uh, 
like the racism is about to, oh man, whenever this stuff happened, the racism start coming out. I can't, I, I feel bad for uh, the Americans from Asia who will guarantee to be discriminated against now because of this. <laughs> like, this is just what happens. Eventually, it's like you're going to come into a store and like, get out of here. You got coronavirus, like all this racism. It happened with Ebola. Now you stigmatize if you're from Africa, et cetera. I remember it was SARS when you're wearing a mask. It's like we just it just amazes me how racism always finds its way to pop out. You know why? Because we have not found the vaccination for racism. <laughs> we have not figured it out. Figure that out. You want to figure something out? Figure that out. That's a pandemic. That's an epidemic. All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was an aside. Let's talk a little basketball. The Warriors are currently, before this Clippers game, four games back of Cleveland and Minnesota for the worst record in the league. I think they're safe. <laughs> they, they're 3-3 three and three in their last six games. They're, they're playing 500 ball lately. But look at, check this out. In the last six games, the Warriors' defensive rating is 13th in the league. They're playing defense. Some of that is the other teams coming in like, man, it's the Warriors. We'll turn it up at the end. But I do think they're safe. There was a concern when Steph came back that a lot of uh, they'd probably win too much. I I also think it's okay if they don't have the worst record, if somehow they end up with the 29th worst record. We're talking about ping pong balls, right? (laughs) Now, if if they have the worst record, they're guaranteed – a top five pick. But if they have the second worst record, I think they guaranteed top six. Well, I mean, it just doesn't matter. It's not that tri- it's not that pivotal. Uh, it's trivial in the end. So at this rate, they're pro- they're going to be bottom one, two, or three. Cleveland and Minnesota both have 19 wins. Could they tank harder than the Warriors the rest of the way? That's very possible. Because believe it or not, the Warriors are starting to play good ball. Not good ball. I'm not going to say good ball. They're starting to play better ball. Uh, They're starting to play more capable basketball. And they're still not a good team, but they might be better than Cleveland and Minnesota and better enough to lose the the last spot. But I think it's okay if they finish with a 29th record. The percentages are still there. Nobody's clamoring. Nobody. There's not a player where you have to get the number one pick. I, but obviously the number one pick is better if you want to ship it. But the number two pick ain't a bad thing either, right? It's not like they lose much if they get the number two pick. But here's what's interesting about the Warriors playing well. They're actually, after they've kind of purged the roster, uh, they're starting to get into Warriors basketball more lately. Steve Kerr was very excited about how they played against Philadelphia. And he was talking about the ball movement. And I was looking up the numbers, and the ball movement is crazy better. Crazy better. The Philly game was the third straight game the Warriors had 30 assists in a game. You know how uh, how many times they've done that this year already? Zero. They have 14 games with 30 assists this year. Last year they had 38. The high in the Steve Kerr era is 50. So they're moving the ball lately like they haven't all year. And part of that was because they just went high pick and roll with D'Angelo Russell, high pick and roll with D'Angelo Russell, or Draymond Green, like pounding the ball, waiting for cuts, waiting for movement. So they have guys who are 
I, I guess you could say, controlling of the offense. And now it's very free-flowing. Now it's like pass, cut, move, pass, cut, move. Like this is Steve Kerr with the Democratic offense or socialist offense. But it actually works. It's working for this team. They're playing better. One of, one of the uh, signs of it, I was looking at Wiggins' numbers, Wiggins' numbers, really small sample size. He's played 11 games, but his true shooting percentage is up. His PER is up. Uh, it's only 11 games, but he's never been over. He's never been in a 17 category. Now he's 17.6. His defensive rating and offensive rating is slightly better than what they've been. He's benefiting from how the Warriors play already. If somehow you can just take away out of your mind the amount of money he's making and what that money might cost the Warriors or prevent the Warriors from getting later, then he just he blends in pretty well. He blends in pretty well. I do think all of this is kind of like a scrimmage. <laughs> none of this really counts because none of these games actually matter. And there's a huge difference when playing with no pressure and playing under expectation. Now if the Warriors do anything, right, if they play hard, if they come close to winning, it's a feat. But next year they'll be expected to win, so there'll be much more pressure. But – you can see the signs of how the Warriors play starting to benefit Andrew Wiggins. He's just a more complete, more sound player uh, so far, slightly. I think that's something. You know what was impressive to me, by the way? Damian Lee's uh, redemption. That dude was really feeling the end of that Toronto game. Like, that was really, he was feeling that. After the game, I tried to talk to him about stuff. He just did not want to talk. He was just like... He was feeling that, like he missed the he missed the free throw, uh, he missed the wide open three, then turned the ball over. Even though he played well that game, right? He even got the steal to set up the tying basket or whatever at the end. So he he had played well, but he was feeling the end of that game. He was feeling like he cost the team the game. So for him to come back and respond like that, with the lefty and one against Philly. That was a big deal in that locker room. I can tell you that much. It was a big deal amongst those players. Like, they really were happy for Damian Lee to bounce back like that. And that's the type of little thing that transfers. When, when the Warriors first began, it was all about chemistry. It was all about team dinners and liking each other and fun and rah-rah. That's what Mark Jackson did. He made them a team and he made them like each other. He didn't make them like each other, but he fostered that environment where it was them against the world, and they were CMB. They all, they were all they got. CMB, cash money, baby. We all we got. If you don't know, that's from New Jack City. But I'm feeling those vibes again. I'm feeling the vibes of they're building like a chemistry that might enhance the talent they have. That's what they did in the past. They weren't that good. But however good they were was enhanced by their togetherness, how they played, how they played hard for each other. So I can see those vibes coming. Now maybe next year, because all these dudes won't be here and they won't, you know, you have these actual starters, you have new teammates. So maybe it won't matter. Maybe all these positive vibes will be gone, but. I think this stuff is being built. I think what's being built matters. I think it's important, right? I wouldn't put, I wouldn't count it as nothing. So it, I, I would say it's something to watch. It's it's definitely something to watch. The relationships that are being built and the vibes 
and the young player, the way the young players interact with each other, the way the old players interact with them. I think it's I think it's it's not nothing. I know the coaches are very are happy right there. They like what's happening despite the losing record. So it's something to watch. Although I probably won't be able to watch it now because we can't go in the locker room. <laughs> so let's hope they show that camaraderie in the mix zone that they create, right? Let's hope we can see that moment where a player puts his arm around another player. You know, I saw I saw an example of this, and this is probably why I'm saying it might not matter next year because it depends on who's the team. But apparently during the during the uh, Toronto game, Toronto game, something happened, and Marquise Chris must have went off on somebody on the court because a couple people was telling him to chill, and then afterwards Juan Toscano Anderson went up to him, and you could see him saying, "It's like, come on, man, you gotta." It just ain't worth it. And Marquise was like, I know, but, like, there's a line. And I just want – it was all good. My, I, I wasn't losing my temper, but I was just letting them know. And I was trying to eavesdrop, but they was they was whisp- they was mumbling. But I won't be able to eavesdrop because I won't be in the locker room. But, but it was just a moment where, like, two players were supporting each other, right? And those things you, you kind of want to see, which is why being in the locker room is important. But I do feel like – they're doing something. I do feel like they're building something. Some, something is there. Something is there. And we're seeing it play out because this is supposed to be the dog days. <laughs> and they're not, they're not sleepwalking through this. They're not. They're actually playing better. They're actually playing better. I wrote about Eric Pascal in The Athletic and, how, and his emergence of late. He's uh, averaging 21 points, shooting 58% from the field over the last six games. And averaging 5.2 assists, another example of how ball movement is impacted. Sister way up, just skyrocketed. And the interesting part is this is all happening while Draymond's out. And what, what has happened is with the changes they've made to the roster and with Draymond being out, they've been forced to play Pascal at power forward. And it's very clear that that's his position. Now, before they were playing him with two bigs, which kind of made him the small forward. He just—he—that's not who he was. That's not who he was. But as the power forward, he's a better player. That's where his promise is. That's where his potential is—a four-man who can create some stuff. He's like a more explosive. I—I I, I just see uh, uh, Paul Millsap vibes from him. More explosive though. But I see a four-man who is really not a three. But. He's got some three skills at the four position. And it's going to be interesting how they manage that because the best, probably the best person for him to play next to is Draymond. But Draymond will have to be the five in that situation because Pascal can't, he's not, he's not a good enough defender to play center. And he doesn't rebound well enough to play center. It's very clear at this point in the season that he needs to play four. One big, three shooters. Without Draymond, without D'Angelo Russell, without Steph. He's being relied on to create offense, and he's doing really good at it. He's really good at creating offense. He's more efficient with it. Uh, his coaches are saying that he's he's really learned better when to shoot and when to pass, when to kick it out. I was watching clips. He does a lot of getting the post, getting the ball, nothing there. He kicks it out, and he gets it back. Or maybe he doesn't get it back, but he's getting kicking it out more than he used to, and he's he's not forcing so much. So they, they like his growth and his decision-making. So the question is, do you just render him an off-ball backup, or do you figure out a way next year 
to take advantage of what he clearly can do, which is create offense. I want to see how they manage this. I say put that dude on the second unit and make him an offensive creator on the second unit. And when you need to close a game with him, you know, you make you put him in there with Draymond. Draymond is the five, Pascal is the four, and you got three shooters. But the optimal setting for Pascal is one big next to him and three three wings who can shoot. He needs the space to create, and it allows him to play his natural position. So they might be set at four is what I'm saying. Draymond's your starting four. Pascal is your backup four. They might be set at four. And I also am not sure you could just ignore the fact that this dude can create buckets. I don't think you could just go now and turn him into Kevon Looney. I don't know if that's the right move. I mean, not everybody, if you give them the chance, can get you 21 on 58% shooting and five assists in six games. Not every not every backup can do that. I bet you Smilogies can't do that right now. I bet Looney can't do that. So it's just like, all right, Draymond can't do that. Draymond can't get you 21 on 58% shooting. It's going to be interesting. I don't think they could just render him an off-ball slasher cutter. He's a really good cutter, by the way. Really good cutter, which will help him playing with Steph and Draymond. He's a really good cutter. And he's explosive, so he can be that that baseline big, he is really good on the baseline. Like, to be a dude so big, he's nimble and he's sneaky back there. He knows how to, like, sneak behind a defender when they're not paying attention. Like, he's really good at that. Watch Pascal along the baseline. You can tell that dude played college ball. Like, you can tell you played four years of college ball because it's pretty good how a, a, a bulky guy like that can slip back door so easily. But when they're doing that tic-tac-toe, the Draymond Steph pick and roll. Draymond gets the ball. And now it's you know four on three, and Draymond is looking for that baseline guy to catch the lob. Pascal can do that, but I think it might be tricky to just limit this dude to that. Like he's not. He might be a little better. He might be better than that. He might be a dude who can go get you a bucket, and I say put that in the second unit. I do. I think they got to put that in the second unit. All right, I've talked enough. You know, I'm riding solo, you feel me? We we got a little corona in, we talked a little hoop. Go watch the movie Contagion. I watched it. I felt like I shouldn't have watched it. I watched it before all this came out, and it was a trip. Part of it is like, dang, I shouldn't have watched that. But part of me is like, it got me watching my, dude, I wash my hands so much, it's ridiculous. Like, my skin is peeling. Like <laughs> I'm the ashiest dude out here. Look like I've been punching powder donuts. It's like crazy, but... So part of me is like, man, I shouldn't have watched that because it, it kind of makes you freak out a little bit. But you're also like, yeah, man, I can see how bad this is, right? <laughs> like, I can see how I see how this stuff could spread, you know. But uh, that Gwyneth Paltrow dying scene—I think we talked about this before—that's gonna that's gonna get you. Also, a part in there that's a little tricky was how Lawrence Fishburne's character—they were quarantined in Chicago, and he wasn't supposed to say nothing because they were trying to get the president safe, and he ended up calling. I don't know who she, I forgot who she was, his girl, his wife, something. He called some girl, was like, yo, get out the city. And then she called somebody, was like, yo, you got to get out the city. Next thing you know, it was on Facebook. <laughs> but how many officials are like, no, nah, it's cool. Don't trip, don't panic. And telling their family, get out the city, <laughs> right? So I was like, oh, okay, who's the Lawrence Fishburne out here? You know what I'm saying? Who, <laughs> who's out here telling people they need to go? Who, who dipped, like, already? Who dipped in November? 
because they got the heads up from somebody who works at in some high place, right? And meanwhile, we're here to suffer. I see, I see what y'all doing. I know everybody's against me today. I know. So shout out to Tim Kawakami for ditching me. Shout out to Ethan for acting like his son is sick so he cannot come on the show with me. Uh, shout out to COVID-19 for kicking me out the locker room. None of y'all will stop me. Just know that. None of you will stop me. I cannot be contained. My greatness has no bounds. My relentlessness is relentless. And you will not be able to stop me. Until the next words plus minus, we out.